Chris O'Connor here. Join our prestigious curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock. Also be on the lookout for a Spotify playlist dedicated to this episode. Now let's get started. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. Once upon a time, James Brown decided that being one of R&B's most inspired and inspiring band leaders and showmen wasn't where it was for him anymore. The show wasn't the thing. The horns weren't the thing. The hits weren't the thing. The romance of soul music wasn't the thing. By 1967, the rhythm was the thing. Actually, for James Brown, the rhythm became the only thing and encompassed everything. Sexuality, black empowerment, swagger, heartache, joy. It all burst forth in pure, loud, powerful, inescapable rhythm. Brown's insatiable itch for rhythm manifested itself in what he called the one. The one referred to the first beat in a measure comprising four beats, whereas the emphasis in most Western music was traditionally on the second beat, Brown shifted all of his rhythmic energy over to the first beat. So, when the time came to repeat a measure, the one crashed down with the force of 40 thunderclaps with all the hammers from all of the gods. The one marked a bold, revolutionary shift in popular music, one that within a generation became the driver of nearly all popular music in America, whether black or white. Funk, disco, house, electronica, new jack swing, and even the teen pop of acts like NSYNC. And later on, of course, and before the teen pop, hip-hop. Mr. Dynamite's One also became a fascinating musical export, influencing the development of musical styles in the Caribbean, Africa, and other parts of the world. Most importantly, the development of hip-hop and the one was inextricably linked. Brown was also the original go-to source for samples used by hip-hop producers in the late 1980s. Fight the Power by Public Enemy? It's built on the bass groove of Hot Pants. T-R-O-Y by Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth. It borrows from Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. South Bronx by Boogie Down Productions. Arguably the best of many, many, many hip-hop songs that sampled the drums from Funky Drummer. It's amazing to consider how much music, culture, and plain damn upheaval sprouted from the one. And... This, that, that simple act of creative genius that Brown produced. But that is indeed the story of James Brown and the One. 
And it's the one that yours truly curmudgeons will celebrate on this second installment of our three-part retrospective of the career, music, and undying legacy of James Brown. Chris and I both worship at the altar of the one, and it will be pretty obvious when you listen to this episode. It's truly an honor to share our truly geeky excitement over this brilliant eight-year stretch of James Brown's career, starting with 1967's stick of audio dynamite, cold sweat, we will run through a staggering run of hits that changed everything in all popular music. And we'll do it with a type of unhinged, twitchy energy that would make Mr. Brown proud. Well, we hope so anyway. Welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report and part two of James Brown, the super bad Mr. Dynamite of all legacies. Arturo, uh, James Brown really did change everything, didn't he? I mean, without his discovery of the sheer mastery of the one, uh, pop music and, dare I say, protest music as we know it today does not exist. Am I right? Yeah. Um, uh, uh, this this period of James Brown that we're talking about on this episode, this is not only the greatest period of his career, it's the most important one. And one of the most important streaks any 20th century artist has ever had in music. This is yeah. right up there with the Beatles hot streaks. This is right up there with Dylan's hot streak. I mean, this is this is there. And yeah. um, you can argue, make the case that this is more influential than either one of those two. And oh, that's saying Oh, I, I don't <laughs> think there, I don't think there's a doubt. I mean, I mean, you you get whole genres of yeah. of music and whole genres of of cultural attitude that are born right. from this eight year streak that that James Brown pulled off. I mean, this is revolutionary genius of the highest order. Uh, which yeah, as you know, that's something that I said on the top there. So. Uh, anyway, how you doing, man? I'm doing fine. I'm 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 ready to get up, get into it, get involved. You know where uh, rock and roll is still revered as the thing, right? <laughs> yes, yes. There's this place called the Parallel Universe, where rock and roll still gets up and does its thing uh, on the grandest stages of them all, and on the billboards, and in the stadiums, and in the arenas. And on the radio stations, yes, there actually is such a thing as rock radio stations that are not top 40. Uh, and that is where we are in the parallel universe. Uh, that's a fancy way of saying that this is the segment of the episode where we cover uh, new music and uh, new albums. Uh, Arturo and I each cover uh, an album of uh, recent vintage, whether it's very recent vintage, as in uh, just out or uh, sometime in the last decade. Yes, there is a vault over here in the parallel universe, which we lovingly call the parallel vault. But uh, that's something for another day. Uh, we're in Africa. We're in parallel Africa. Uh, for, for, both, for, for both our, 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 our selections. Yes. yes. And so we will be starting in, of all places, uh, uh, EDM Groove Heavy Uganda. Yeah. It's very fitting that we're, we're in Africa for both selections for the parallel universe, because this episode of James Brown, this period of his music is the most Afrocentric uh, of his career. So, yeah, we, we, we're on that groove. And the groove starts with Faisal Mostrix, spelled F-A-I-Z-A-L, first name, Mostrix, M-O-S-T-R-I-X-X. -X. 
He is a producer from Uganda who just recently put out a nifty, groovy little record called Mutations. Essentially, Mostrix takes traditional African acapella vocals from the various indigenous tribes in or in or around Uganda and augments them with weird off-kilter EDM beats and rhythms. It is an often, note I say, often thrilling listen. It doesn't always work. There are two or three tracks that incorporate a little too much cheesy synthesizer. But the best songs are the ones that groove a little more steadily and are heavily percussive. Select songs, the Latin rhythms meet Vangelis vibe of Back to Tanzania. The, dub, the dubstep goes to, goes to the jungle groove of, well... Tunes of the Jungle, and the tension-filled progressive electro of Likely, where the guy doing the chanting vocals sounds like he's saying something about marijuana. I'm not really sure. But yeah. anyway, uh, in a year for music that is getting increasingly mediocre and filled with retro revival artists, this is a solid three-and-a-half-star album that actually has some originality and innovation to it. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think that there is a... Uh... There, there, there's a, a uniqueness in the in the reverb and the, there's a there's this woozy uh, kind of psychedelic quality to what he's doing here that's pretty singular. You know, when you are talking about, as you said, it's almost like cave recordings from Uganda, uh, Uganda, yeah. Uganda uh, and, you know, sort of stretched and slowed and, and distorted in, in the in these beats. And uh, I saw a quote from uh, Mr. Mostrix on his uh, Bandcamp profile. Mm. Uh, his label quotes him as saying, Afrofuturism, this is what he calls it, Afrofuturism is a way to describe the meeting of the electronic and the tribal. It's about mm. bringing the past into the now and then imagining how it could be expressed in the future. Uh, very simple explanation, but I think it fits here and it's, that's a pretty decent uh, exercise. I'll give him that. Uh, it's certainly much better than that Acid Arab uh, album. That oh, you- come on. This is sexy Middle Eastern men dancing to those club grooves. Come on. You got to love that. Oh, stop. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, bas- basically that, you know, that's just like, like cheesy, like wedding hall reverence where this is like actually uh, in a way it's kind of the same exercise. And actually, I think might actually be a, of the same vintage and at least with stuff like back to tanzania is better it's kind of the same thing that moby was doing with all those alan lomax recordings on play yeah it's almost like you're taking those indigenous or you're taking those uh field recordings i guess is the best way to put them but maastrix is funkier though yeah Uh, yeah it it is it is funkier and and it's definitely spacier uh you know that's i think that that's the word it's kind of like taking the you know the the tribes and gorillas of uganda and you know taking them to the moon and mars and beyond uh it's kind of neat now we're going to stay on the continent of africa and we go from uganda a little farther south to zambia and uh to a band that some of you if you've been digging in the crates your whole lives may have actually heard of it's this band called witch which uh as i understand it is stands for we intend to cause havoc uh mm. that is uh that is what which uh, stands for and so uh here's one of the more fascinating stories of the year uh, this band which uh they were one of the foremost uh progenitors of what was known as zamrock 
which mm. came out about in the uh, very early 70s. And uh, Zamrock, you know, it comes during a period of, of, of great upheaval in that uh, in that region. Uh, essentially, Zambia is what used to be known as North Ro- Northern Rhodesia. Uh, Southern Rhodesia is Zimbabwe. Uh, Zambia also borders uh, their neighbor to the north is Congo. Oh, gee, this mm-hmm. is a, this is a safe neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, and so Zambia is it's, it's a kind of a fascinating little place that it's uh, n- known as one of the great uh, copper uh, rich places in the world. Mm. And so it's known for its copper mining and other uh, mineral uh, riches. Uh, but it also was subject starting from 1964 into the 90s to authoritarian socialist rule uh, mm. of a really aggressive uh, sort. And so, yes, you had a an, an atmosphere that was rife with revolution and rife for uh, voices of of dissent or voices or, I don't know, this sort of using music to make yourself heard. And so right. along comes this movement called Zamrock. And what Zamrock was, was a really weird mix. It was like the least African of the African 70s uh, musical movements <laughs> in a way, because it, it found its inspiration in the psychedelic rock of not really San Francisco, but more like Hendrix, uh, yeah. really heavily influenced by Hendrix, really heavily influenced by the bluesmen, you know, the the Peter Greens and the Tony Iommi's and uh, the, the other guitarist, Jimmy Pages of London. Mm. Uh, but then it also adds touches of American R&B and funk, uh, James Brown uh, and, and others being big influences, but also reggae. And so you get this really sort of chilled out, fuzzed out, uh, jammy mix of lots of styles. I mean, it's closer to Steve Miller than it is to Fela Kuti. In, in- <laughs> and so uh, which comes out of, of this uh, of, of this sort of uh, movement of music. And they come out in the uh, in the early 70s. And uh, the. Uh, leader of this band uh, was a guy named Emanyeo uh, Ch- uh, Emanyeo Chandra. His nickname is Jaggery. Uh, it's spelled J A G A R I, but spelled or pronounced Jaggery, as in he was a big fan of Mick Jagger. Yes, yeah, I would say. I was about to say that sounds like a uh, an adjective or anything anything you do that's Mick Jagger like. Yes, and and this guy was kind of a peacock, is kind of a peacock, and uh, actually did get that nickname from Mick Jagger, uh, or from his reverence for Mick Jagger. And so they did these two, like three or four records between seventy and seven, seventy-two and seventy-six. This really fascinating mix of like, what if Bob Marley and Sid Barrett were in the same band, at, with with, <laughs> Steve, with Steve Miller singing? Uh, with a lot of, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it 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 really is a crazy ass mix. And so they're doing these. But what happened was, is that as Zambia went more into, got more war torn and more uh, under that uh, really sort of uh, firm authoritarian rule, uh, the pressure to, you know, the pressures got a little much. And uh, Chandra eventually uh, quits the band and they lost their nerve a little bit. By 1980, they're a cheesy disco band. Uh, (laughs) If you want to hear a genuinely terrible record, uh, 1980s move on. Uh, yeah, as in move on from this shit. Uh, it's, yeah. it's it's not very good. Uh, and so they went dormant, and they after 1984 they disappeared. Well, 
uh, like a lot of things in the uh, in the aughts and early tens, the uh, American uh, uh, vinyl digging in the crates set from New York uh, rediscovered the joys of Zamrock. And in uh, 2011, uh, a, a four disc box set uh, was released. It's called uh, Which We Intend to Cause Havoc. And again, it's four discs, it's three and a half hours, and it's just like basically all of their stuff. And lo and behold, because of this new interest, uh, Chandra's got new life. And so he comes back and they reform Witch uh, with a couple of European dudes. It's like basically young guys. There's one other original still around. And after all this, for the first time in 39 years, Witch... Uh, I mean, this sounds like the plot of a Christopher Guest movie. This is kind of like a Mighty Wind African division. Uh, They come up with a new album called Zango. And this was just released uh, last month. I would recommend listening to it because it it is a very eclectic, very strange little record that, you know, as as suggested by their stuff from 50 years ago, it's a it's an comes out of an acid tinged blender. But it's actually Mm. The bizarre thing about Zango, it might be the most African sounding thing that this African band ever has produced, uh, you know, after 40 something, 50 something years. Now, all of a sudden, you do have more presence of African polyrhythms to go with some of the uh, Sabbath loving riffs and uh, some of the other uh, classic rock, you know, Jethro Tullish uh, type uh, of, of touches. And so what you end up with, it's a kind of a wacky record that sprawls all over the place. It's like one measure psychedelic rock, one measure progressive rock, lots of retro buzzsaw guitar soloing. And, you know, Jaggery's not so much a singer so much as he is kind of like a toaster. He's kind of like an MC in an old uh, Cole Rock a Party uh, type, of, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. type of affair. Yeah. And so it's a fun listen, but don't go into it expecting real songs. And, you know, don't go in with too high of expectations. So ultimately, uh, Zango, this album by which Zango proves that thanks to the undying devotion of everything 70s, all that is old can still be old again. Uh, There is not a shred of true originality here, but sometimes a fuzzed out eclectic celebration of, well, eclecticism is enough to satisfy us all. Long live, we intend to cause havoc. Yeah, um, I think this particular album, I think, is pretty good. Uh, Like I said, it's not the most original. Um, I've heard sounds like this before done by other bands from other African countries. Um, However, hopefully what this album does is get people to go back and listen to Witch's back catalog. That's what real good stuff is. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeonrock.
Well, folks, now we get to talk about the hardest working man in show business, hardest working period in which everything as we know it literally changed, uh, where he went from a band leader extraordinaire to something fairly extraterrestrial. Uh, it, it, it's, it's hard to describe. He became his own instrument. And yeah, really for did. the betterment of music and the betterment of society. Uh, here's a quote that uh, I think kind of shows you where Brown was at at the time and kind of kind of showed he, he almost had kind of a charming, goofy uh, self-awareness to him. Mm -hmm. And right. so, uh, here's a quote to share. Well, the hardest thing about being James Brown is I have to live. I don't have <laughs> I don't have no downtime. Unquote. <laughs> so, yeah, that's. uh yeah, he don't have no downtime, and and we were all better for it. So, speaking of having no downtime, uh, everybody, I hope you're ready. We are having this is the world's longest lightning round. It really is the lightning. And some of these, ends. some of the some of the tracks here are long as hell too. Yep. And so let us let us get started. Uh, uh, he had a string of uh, really a, a whole bunch of number one or almost number one R and B hits. Uh, that so it was on the R and B charts that he made his mix uh, that he made his his greatest mark here. But some of these songs managed to find their way into the top ten uh, uh, pop charts on Billboard as well. Correct, Parker? Absolutely. Some of them went into a few of them went top ten. A bunch of them went top twenty. Actually. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Uh, so yes, it's not just he wasn't doing these revolutions on the sideline. He was doing this live and in color. Uh, you know, in your living room and 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 zap to you. He 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 pulled for somebody to pull off the kind of shit that Brown did while he was this popular is pretty amazing. Yeah, he really is. Um. Anyway, let, let let's start with the one from 1966. It's a man's 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 world. <laughs> uh, number one R and B, number eight in the pop chart. It's strange to start a rundown of James Brown's funkiest period with what is basically a ballad, but it's not just one of Brown's biggest hits. Uh, it, it was frequently covered by the Grateful Dead in the late 1960s. Right, uh, it's also it's also an interesting look into the man's psychology. Brown's lyrics were usually glorifications of his ego and his masculinity, with the oncoming funk period taking that premise to the extreme. But here, Brown is admitting that while it's a man's world, it, quote, it wouldn't be nothing without a woman or a girl. You know, it's awfully generous of him to extol the virtues of womanhood, even if that womanhood is subjugated to the all-encompassing power of yeah, his manliness. <laughs> um, yet the lyrical sincerity gets a little undermined when you read about the man's personal life and his, his, and his history of uh, physically abusing women. However, if you can manage to suspend that for a minute, this is one of Brown's most simmering, passionate, powerful ballads with lyrics that clearly aren't throwaway in any way. His vocals are powerful, but they're also nuanced with delicate phrasing and uh, his, his patented howl only coming in when needed. It's a killer track. Too bad Brown couldn't live up to the lyrical sentiment in his real life. Yeah, pretty. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, you do have to suspend some disbelief when it comes to tender James Brown. Yeah, uh, he was <laughs> definitely tender on this record, though. It's one of his great uh, vocals. And like you said, uh, he keeps the, the screaming uh, to a minimum, which this really is the end of James Brown 1.0. Uh, James, yeah. James Brown 1.0 was a sensational band leader and a sensational frontman crooner 
you know, sort of the uh, sort of the traditional uh, out front, you know, song and dance man, basically. Right. You know, like he, right. he could have he could have been Sammy Davis Jr. I mean, let's face it, if he had wanted to, he had that kind of uh, sort of straight entertainer uh, talent. But this song is pretty extraordinary, too, because essentially what it is, it's it's 12 bar blues done mm. as a porch song. And so yeah. it, it, it it literally is. It's a man, man's world. It's a man, man, man's man's world. But it ain't nothing with a woman. You know, it's, it's, it, it follows that traditional uh, blues, even lyrical structure. Uh, and so yeah. not even just the, not even just the measures. It's also the you know the way that he structures the choruses or the, you know, the way that they uh, pro progress. So uh, it's a pretty uh, neat uh, musical accomplishment. Uh, as an aside, uh, a friend of mine here in Houston, uh, Don Payne, if you're listening, uh, how's it going, dude? Uh, he, there, it, you can find this on uh, YouTube. Apparently, about a before Brown died, uh, this was maybe 20 years ago at this point, uh, him and uh, Luciano Pavarotti hooked up at a uh, 90th... Uh, so 90th anniversary celebration of Decca Records, who I guess both you know, they distributed both Brown and Pavarotti, but they got together in concert to do a a, a, a version of "It's a Man's 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 World," uh, <laughs> in, intercut with some Pavarotti opera, and the, <laughs> and the seamlessness of it is extraordinary. Uh, it, it, really, it really is worth checking out, and especially you you want to talk about. Uh, two men wearing more wake uh, more makeup than a Bloomingdale's uh, on stage <laughs> with Paparotti and Brown. If if it had yeah. rained, that shit would have melted big time and everybody <laughs> on that stage. That's way too much fucking makeup for two men to be wearing. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? James Brown used to put a lot of like a uh, conk and gel in his hair to like yeah. make it stylish it was around this period uh late 60s mid to late 60s when he stopped using it because you know the whole black power movement was about naturalism you yep. know we, we we have to you know uh take pride in and and in, in our afros and our natural look oh, and he yeah. started doing he started doing this around 1967 68 speaking of 1967 cold sweat Number one R&B, number seven in the pop chart. Chris, you mentioned in the last episode that James Brown's patented on the one formula was birthed uh, two years previously with his massive hits. Papa's got a brand new bag and I feel good. I kind of disagree. You can hear the alchemy of the one being formulated, but its truest form and its proper introduction came with this song. Quite yeah. possibly Cold Sweat is the first truest form funk song to hit the billboard singles chart and it's most definitely the first funk song to be a major hit now yeah. back in 2014 the late chadwick bozeman the actor uh delivered an amazing performance uh portraying james brown in the very good biopic film get on up there's a scene in the film uh, that takes place around 1966 or 67 when Brown is rehearsing with his band. He stops the proceedings and attempts to explain his new idea. He asks the guitarist, pointing to the guitar, what's that? Guitarist says, it's a guitar, Mr. Brown. Brown says, no, it ain't. It's a drum. Then he goes to the horn section, pointing at a saxophone. Hey, man, what's that? Brown asks. It's a saxophone, Mr. Brown, says the saxophonist. No, it ain't, says Brown. It's a drum. 
And on he went with each instrument. The point being that everything is percussion. Yep. He wanted the entire band to be the human embodiment of one constant churning rhythm. Melody and harmony vocals were to be stripped away. Classic songwriting was to be reduced to its bone dry minimum. Anything musically superfluous was to be removed. And every instrument, every note was to serve the purpose of the perpetuity of continuous body movement. The tribal rhythms of Africa distilled to its very essence with a classic Southern American flavor, all kept together by the one. And that is cold sweat. Chris, uh, we, we, we can devote an entire episode to the recording of this song. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, it, it really is an amazing accomplishment. And you're right. I mean, if the one was birthed in, in effect in uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag and those songs, uh, this is where it really, if it's birthed then, this is where it comes to the forefront. And the one becomes an absolute thing here. Yeah where the one and three officially take over. Ain't no subtlety, like you said, yeah. Uh, yeah. with this song. And the thing about Cold Sweat that is amazing, uh, yes, I would say that this probably is the first funk hit. Uh, it's metronomic as hell, but also just it's soulful as hell, too. So it's got this very cold, rigid bass and drum uh, backbone with like the most organic horn arrangements imaginable on top of it. Uh, and I think a lot of folks... Uh, listening, if you have not heard Cold Sweat, yes, you have. Why? <laughs> because if you were 13 or older in the late 1980s, starting in about 1987, every single piece and component of Cold Sweat was sampled over and over and over and over and over again in the early hip hop canon. Uh, Basically, early New York hip-hop singles with James Brown was the go-to source for all of those samples. And so Public Enemy even made uh, use good use of Cold Sweat twice. Uh, first hmm. on Pro Prophets of Rage, uh, from a, a, it takes a million, a nation of millions to hold us back in 1988. And then they used it again in Welcome to the Terror Dome hmm. in uh, uh, 1990 on Fear of a Black Planet. So... It's just one of those just influential just grooves and just everything. It's it, it really is just kind of a deconstruction of rhythm. And I guess what we can say is thank you, Mr. Brown, for getting bored with the, with doing it straight. Uh, yeah. The idea is you know, we quoted him last episode in an interview saying that he, he figured out early on that his thing was the rhythm and not the horns and not the slickness. Yeah, and so he just went with what brought him to the dance, and boy did he! Yeah, the next track on this on this on this list, I got the feeling from 1968, number one R and B again, number six on the pop chart, really high, higher than Cold Sweat actually. Yep. In fact, it's a very close cousin or even a sibling of Cold Sweat. I got the feeling sees James Brown getting closer to perfecting his funk formula. It moves like a finely tuned engine with the by now patented choppy horn riffs with saxophone solo knocking on the door of the reckless abandon that Brown's horn section would indulge in later on. Chris? Baby, 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 yeah. baby, baby, 
baby, baby, baby. This song is I Got You, I Feel Good, cranked to like 16. Yeah. Uh, just as minimal and just as passionate and just as defined by its horns, but it's faster, it's swingier, it's more intense, it's wilder, it's sweatier, it's more nihilistic. And You're it's right. just, uh, it's, it's just, it's a runaway train, but a beautifully organized runaway train. It, it's this cool little tight nugget that sounds like it's almost about to lose its shit. Uh, yeah. And, and that, that's just the energy just, it folds on itself. It's, it's just, it's an incredible, incredible song. And, you know, there's a live version of it. Well, a quote unquote live version of it on an album we'll talk about in a little bit. That's even faster and even more nihilistic, which makes it even yeah. impressive. Yeah, Damn. totally. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, the live version is better and we'll, but we'll talk about that soon. Yeah. All right. Next. Say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. <laughs> From 1968, number one in the R&B charts, number 10 in the pop chart. And here we get James Brown's most explicitly political song yet. And frankly, it's his boldest song. Uh, for a modern day perspective, it's impossible to understand how daring it was for Brown to put this out as a single in 1968. It was the height of Vietnam War protesting. And more importantly, it was a time during the civil rights movement when African-Americans started to get more radicalized. Martin Luther King Jr. had just been assassinated and tensions were high. Uh, the Black Panthers were starting to become a thing. Uh, for a Black person to say, I'm Black and I'm proud, was generally interpreted by white people at the time as a middle finger to the face. Oh, yeah. Then again, then again, there are idiots nowadays who misinterpret Black Lives Matter as Black Lives Mattering more than white lives. So maybe we haven't come that far. No. But in any case, Brown releasing this song put him squarely in the vanguard of African-American entertainers and pop stars who were willing to put their beliefs up front and their careers on the line by clearly choosing sides and not pandering to the mainstream pop music establishment. In fact, in 1968, there were precious few artists, even black artists, in the field that Brown worked in that actually did so. He was rewarded with a huge hit and, in my opinion, one of his 10 best songs, one that should be considered one of his signature songs. The One is in full effect with a monster groove and all children's chorus that softens the blow of the seemingly militant message. And Brown delivers the lyrics with a blustery sincerity that transcends racial lines. When he sings, I'm black and I'm proud, he invites everyone, white, black, brown, red, to say I'm black and I'm proud. Black stops being it stops becoming ethnicity. It becomes humanity. It's one yeah. of the most stirring motions of intent in pop music history. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. As as an anthem of identity, there's hardly any better uh, in the history of popular music. I think this is Brown's most meaningful song. Uh, maybe sure. it's not his most important song to the development of the rock and roll slash R&B slash funk canon. But it, it's his most meaningful song in the sense of not only is he standing up in 1968 and saying, I'm black and I'm proud, like you said, during that period where things are starting to get uh, you know, more sinister and darker. And, you know, like you said, King and RFK are, are, are getting assassinated. You've got uh, 
John Carlos and Tommy Smith uh, uh, getting disqualified at the Olympics with, for doing the Black Power uh, salute. So not only is he saying I'm black and I'm proud, but he's using a chorus of children to do it. That's not mm-hmm. softening the blow. That's uh, th- that's like handing down a generational gift to kids. Yeah. And, and, and being subversive too. And being subversive and empowering those kids who, you know, at, at that point, remember, I mean, one of the King's greatest failed uh, movement was trying to get uh, schools uh, get national exposure to the school inequality in Chicago. Uh, yeah. That blew up in his face. Uh, that didn't it didn't go very well. But uh, it it just underscores that it, it gives voice to those children. Uh, right. That's that, that's a pretty amazing thing. And so not only are you it it's you're singing about you know the, the the beauty of your identity but it's also a way of saying hey we're going to have a voice too and we're going to have a, a dog in this hunt as well and so i think that's that's pretty remarkable i mean even going back to the 80s i mean like when you and i were you know in our early teens when jesse jackson's running for president i mean that's still practically like a national anthem for young black uh and, and brown children in america I don't. I don't know yeah. if that's the case anymore, but it is. It, it it's just a a wonderful statement and a wonderful accomplishment. Uh, let me give you a quote uh, that where where Brown is co- sort of coming from. Uh, he did an, uh, a television interview in 1968, and I found this in a clip in YouTube where he says, "Quote: There's nobody in the world who who can identify with my people better than me. I'm a Negro. I don't want to be nothing but a Negro because that's what I am." But that still don't stop me from being a man. I've got to be a man too. And so, I mean, that's a very brown statement. It's like, yeah. you know, I I am what I am, but I'm more than what you think I am. You know, right? So there's there's this dignity that that Brown uh, had, and I'm telling you, you know, God, God bless egomania. And so this is like one beautiful distillation of this egomania, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and he definitely had an ego for it. Well, he bounced, but he came back. How did how did he follow that up? Well, he, he gets away from the socio-political uh, sloganeering and he comes up with Give It Up or Turn It Loose from 1969, number one again, R&B, number 15, pop. Now, in its original form, this song has the one, but is a bit more mid-tempo and subdued, probably intentionally restrained to appeal more to mainstream white audiences. However, the following year, when James Brown stopped giving a shit what mainstream white audiences thought, Mr. Brown re-recorded it for his 1970 album, It's a New Day, Let a Man Come In. The result was a raging beast of funk power enhanced by bongos and his new slim trim band, the JBs, more on them later, with its insane mid-song breakdown. It's easily one of the most powerful and, well, manly (laughs) grooves in Brown's entire repertoire. Chris? Yeah, and it's pretty remarkable because, you know, we have to give it up for this song because it's a remarkable recording that was done remarkably well twice, as you said. So the first version from 1969, this is the first appearance on uh, this list of songs that we're talking about in this episode of saxophonist Maceo Parker and trombonist and uh, uh, champion arranger and band leader Fred Wesley. Maceo! Maceo! 
Yeah, and yeah, he he would do that repeatedly, chanting out his uh, when he put during this period performing live, he would chant out his band members' names like yeah. just randomly. ACO, Fred, <laughs> Fred, as yeah. a way as a way for them to come in and do their solo, basically. Yeah, absolutely, and and both of these guys were just absolutely remarkable uh, soloists and players, and you know they could do the 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 in the horn arrangements and hit that like you said that staccato. Uh, horn yeah. uh, beat that, that Brown became known for. And they were kind of the heart of that, but also both amazing solos. So they show up on the first recorded version, that mid-tempo version of Give It Up or Turn It Loose. And then in 1970, when it goes like full on, just, just you know, runaway train, uh, yeah. this is where you get uh, Catfish and Bootsy Collins. 17-year-old <laughs> uh, Bootsy Collins. Uh, he's two weeks shy of his 18th birthday when this thing is recorded. Wow. And, uh, and Catfish is, is Bootsy's brother on guitar. And so you get them, but not only that, but you get Clyde Stubblefield on drums and uh, accompanied by a conga player. And so you get mm. this just absolute, just rhythm, just absolute, just like I said, just a machine. It's like a war machine of funk is, yeah. that, is that second version. And it's just, it is just gnarly as hell. And again, you know, Brown, we said it last up, but we'll say it again, whether it was slow or medium or medium to high or high or supersonic, that man was a master of tempo that, yes. he, could, that he could find the folds in the nooks and crannies of a rhythm, the deep, deep, deep texture of a rhythm, no matter what the tempo was. And, and so he could take the same song, do three different versions of it at three different speeds and make them just three absolutely, uh, booming powder kegs of originality and i think that the two versions of give it up and turn it loose are one of the better uh proofs of that in the entire yeah catalog. yeah no matter what tempo up tempo down tempo mid tempo he still managed to be funky and danceable yep. either way Absolutely. uh coming yeah. up next mother popcorn in parentheses you've got to have a mother for me <laughs> uh, yep. from 1969 number one r&b again number 11 pop pretty high uh by this point brown was so preoccupied with riding the one into the stratosphere and grasping at whatever cosmic funk dust he could get his hands on all sensical lyrical occupations and allusions to melody were abandoned in favor of serving one universal sexualized sweaty funky bump and grind <clears throat> yeah chris yeah so so basically from from this point on basically 1969 to 1973 as you just said uh any pretense of these songs being songs is, <laughs> gone is, is abandoned within the first five seconds of every one of these songs that it, it's they're they are amazing songs but it's because everything in it is about rhythm and about funk and about energy and even brown's voice is an instrument I mean, yeah. I mean, half of the lyrics on these songs are just absolute. Not, either, either they're absolute nonsense, or it's just, uh, ah, yeah, you know, yeah. And so, like, the grunts are as much of an instrument and as much of a texture builder on these songs uh, as anything. Now, uh, also, Mother Popcorn starts this tradition. Uh, I guess effectively starts it. I mean, he had done this once or twice before, but where he has these songs that are uh, broken up into parts one and two or as many as parts one, two, three, and four. And mm. Mother Popcorn is notable because uh, uh, part two is an amazing uh, solo from Maceo Parker. It's a, a tenor sax solo. 
that is just an absolute sizzler uh, of a song yeah. here. And uh, Mother Popcorn, for what it's worth, is another one of those songs like Cold Sweat that was uh, that was sampled uh, in every way, in every form, by everybody for like <laughs> five years in, in early yeah. stage New York hip hop. Uh, in, incredible piece of music, uh, incredible performances by all the musicians, especially Maceo Parker. Yeah. Now, coming up next, Get Up! I Feel Like Being a Sex Machine from 1970. Number two R&B, only number two, and number 15 pop. Now, yeah. how this song only made it to number two in the R&B chart and only number 15 in the pop chart is beyond me. As far as this curmudgeon is concerned, this is the definitive James Brown song and should be his signature song. By early 1970, Brown's band had had enough of his super strict dictatorial ways of management and frankly, his verbal abuse. <laughs> uh, they also wanted a raise, which the notoriously stingy Brown wasn't ready to give. Yep. So hence he fired all the members except for the drummer who insisted on staying and went around asking the uh, went around the Cincinnati area uh, looking uh, uh, looking for a, a new young band. Uh, Cincinnati is where King Records was based. And he went there in order to find a new band. He came upon a group of young guys headed by the brother duo of Phelps Catfish Collins on guitar and William Bootsy Collins on bass. And they went on to be, be to become known as the JBs. This slimmed down six-piece band provided not only a youthful exuberance uh, to Brown's funk, but a harder edge than Brown's funk ever had before. Um, this is a calling card clarion call for all funketeers throughout the universe. One of my all-time favorite tracks, one of the greatest songs of the 20th century. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the uh, the interpolation of Shake Your Money Maker by Bobby Bird. Uh, that's Bird's finest moment is Brown's hype yeah. man on this song. Yeah. Because, you know, Bobby yeah. Bird, is, he, he's, the, he's the yeah. You know, when you think of the yeah in the James yeah. Brown parody, <laughs> that's him. Uh, yeah. Bobby Bird is, is the yeah, you know, like uh, yeah. rock and roll's greatest hype man, uh, for sure. Uh, the interesting thing about Sex Machine and a lot of the songs from this period, there's a very brief period where Catfish and Bootsy are involved. Uh, yeah. It's the one period where the horns are not the definer. It, it's mm. the guitar and the bass. Yes. Uh, and, you know, that, that guitar lick from Catfish on this thing is incredible. And obviously, you know, Bootsy's one of the greatest bassists who ever lived. Now, there's a reason that he was short-lived in Brown's band. Because, uh, you know, let's face it. If you're Bootsy Collins, uh, you're not going to listen too well to anyone, let alone James Brown, telling Bootsy Collins how to play bass. You know, and, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know he, he's not going to be the kind of guy that's going to put up with James Brown's dictatorial ways uh, and, yeah. you know, and say, you know, do it my way or the highway. It's like, bitch, I built the highway. You know, or bitch, I... <laughs> You know, I am the highway, yeah. uh, you know, I'm, and, and, and also also Bootsy liked to like get high, smoke right, pot, take acid. And that didn't go well with James Brown. <laughs> yeah. Brown, yeah. You know, yeah. For say what you want about Brown. But, you know, Brown, he might have had his own drug problems, but that dude was a professional's professional. And so, you know, yeah. you, you screw around with him. It does, doesn't work. But yeah. but essentially, you know, you've got like, you know, Brown and Bootsy, who are like, you know, two of the most unique people that ever walked the face of the earth. Yeah. As if they're going to get along, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I know. 
No, but I yeah. kind of I kind of agree with you. This is pretty much a Brown's quintessential uh, song. It's 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 a scent. Yeah, it's the greatest riff that uh, anybody associated with uh, any of his songs ever came up with. Uh, you know, for sure. I mean, it's it's a guitar song. Uh, yeah. it's, you know that, and then I think Bird plays piano, and uh, Brown, at least on the uh, "quote unquote" live version, the second version from 1970, plays organ. But so, mm. so, so the the piano solo is Bird, and so right. just there's a musicianship on this song that's incredible too. Yeah. For sure. Another thing about this song that cannot be overstated: this song oozes primordial sex. Oh yeah, sweaty, no sweaty, hot smoldering sex that you can melt a stick of butter with and put the remains in every orifice your partner has. Yeah, pretty much. Sometimes, sometimes, listen, fuck that. Most of the time, you just need a song that is solely about feeling like a sex machine and wanting to fuck that still manages to not objectify anyone in the process. This is about enjoying sex, feeling sex, being sex before George Michael wanted your sex, James Brown claimed he was your sex. Yeah, and and boy was he. You know, you're talking about you know, semen stains the mountaintops. No, semen stains your stereos uh, <laughs> through the form of uh, through the form of uh, get up. I feel like being a sex machine. Sure. Yeah, totally. And and this the sex continues next. Super bad from 1970. Number one R&B, again, number 13 pop. What's this song about? It's about James Brown having soul. And you know what? He's super bad. He feels so good, he wants to kiss himself. (laughs) Never has a song about sheer, proud narcissism felt so inspiring, so moving, and so universally resonant. He goes into himself so much that it makes you want to love yourself the same way. It's oh, yeah. also one of the it's also one of the most tense, tightest funk grooves anyone has ever come up with, punctuated by that delectable horn section and shocking, scronking atonal sax saxophone solo that wouldn't be out of place on an Ornette Coleman album. Chris? Nope, not at all. Uh this is one of those songs. There's very few songs that I cannot sit still when I listen to this song. <laughs> you listen to it and yeah. you know just you know even even like like the corniest ass like no rhythm white people will like will like at least bop uh to this song it is all danceable rhythm and energy and just so super uh, superfluous and supreme and whatever other adjectives you want to say it, it really is a super super badass song uh and just the bridge on it is just it's just this impossibly hard driving song. Notice, by the way, that all of these songs, basically starting from Cold Sweat, they get more intense and more up tempo and more hard driving and more maximal as they go along. I mean, it, yeah. it just, you know, it, it, it's kind of like a train going off the tracks. In all, the, the- all these all these tracks have momentum. It's all about building momentum, building momentum. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and and it really is. I mean, because because think about it, we we have not ratcheted down in intensity at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, basically, you know, once you get the cold sweat, it's just up and up and more up and more up yeah. and more up. But hey, guess what? In this segment, we still have more up to go. I mean, super bad is pretty fucking awesome. But that's not that's not the most like unhinged uh, yeah. songs 
Unhinged is the next one, which uh, Get Up, Get Into It, Get Involved from 1970. Number four, R&B. Number four, only number four. Number 34, Pop. It's the one that he used to close all his set lists uh, during this period. Um, It's probably the most hyperkinetic single (laughs) of this period of Brown's career. Um, Get Up, Get Into It, Get Involved is an unstoppable, like you said, locomotive train of high-octane, fast-paced funk. The horn section rides a hypnotic, trancy motif that lets up only in the bridge with this choppy chicken scratch guitar solo. Uh, This is a powerhouse performance that is one of several Brown tracks that had a deep influence on the burgeoning Afrobeat movement that would eventually be spearheaded by uh, Fela Kuti. Yes, Fela was listening to James Brown. Chris? What was he? Yeah, and you can tell this is this is about as Afrocentric as the songs get. Uh, this song is amazing. It's essentially the same exercise as uh, "Get Up." I feel like being a sex machine, but on the, steroids. <laughs> yeah, but but, but the, the call to action is uh, community activism rather than sexual satisfaction. Yeah, uh, and right. so, but it's that this arrangement, that fat ass baseline, the conga, the horns, the speed of it. And just the gnarliness of it, I mean, just the the energy and almost like pseudo rage that Brown and yeah. Bobby Bird yeah. are, are, you know, sort of scream. They're almost like screaming their parts. It's like, yeah. get up, get up, get into it, get into it, get involved, get involved. You know, when, it, when you're having your back problems again, Chris, this is what you need to listen to. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I was gonna say it'll be it'll be cathartic, man. Cathartic. Uh yeah, it it really is just it's extraordinary. And it's just uh I guess, you know, Brown just I think as I was preparing for this episode, the the word that kept coming over and over again in my head, nihilism. You know, mm. when he first makes that decision in sixty six that he's bored with being uh, you know, with, with being the you know, the the R and B frontman crooner of all crooners. Mm. Uh from that period on, he just gets more and more and more nihilistic and kind of don't give a fuck and has that swagger of mm. you know, no, knowing what he wants to do and going for it and just, you know, shoving that rhythm down your throat and doing what he does just more than anything. But that, you know, that idea of, you know, that inspiration of shifting all the emphasis from the two and the four to the one and the three uh, and then just once he had once he had his his gimmick or once he had his concept to just yeah. adding just piling on layers and you know just yeah. cake, caking on more and more shit uh <laughs> as as he went on it's just it's 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 an extraordinary evolution of confidence for uh, just unbelievable yeah what is truly unbelievable is next it is not a single, it's a live album called Sex Machine from 1970, a double live album. Number four on the R&B charts, number 29 in the pop charts. Now, Live at the Apollo gets all the plaudits, but for me, this is James Brown's best live album. Beyond that, if I were to count live albums on my own list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, this would easily be top 100, if not top 50. Uh, of all the live albums Brown put out, this is the one that shows just how much of a force of nature this guy and his band was as a live performer and performers. 
Uh, all the versions of these tracks are more intense. They're funkier. They're more driven and flat out filthier uh, than the original single releases. Now, calling this whole thing a live album is tricky. Uh, disc one was actually recorded in the studio with audience noise reverberation edited in to make it sound live. Disc two is a purely live album with all of it recorded in Augusta, Georgia's Bell Auditorium, now known as the James Brown Arena. So take that as you will. Chris? Yeah. And, and so you, you made the point I was going to make that uh, it, it's one of the the first two sides are the great the greatest phony live record ever made. Yeah. Since that they piped in the crowd noise and uh, you know added all that funk, you know, that stadium filling reverb uh, in mm. the mix. Uh, it's really funny, by the way, in, in a way you can kind of tell that it's, it's contrived because uh, I love when they're doing the version of, of sex machine on there and it goes to the bridge and you get like the, the, the most tasteful and the, 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 the most like, lightly spirited clap from the yeah. audience applause and so it's yeah. not like people go like, like screaming their heads off or or shaking in unison it's just it's almost like a tennis match yeah, to yeah. the bridge and so that uh, i almost wonder if they did that as a joke it just kind of stands out it's almost like it's a japanese audience or something uh <laughs> and so uh, so that's extraordinary but then uh, i think my favorite part of this record and one of the smarter things on it is uh, Brown and uh, company, they do an instrumental cover of Blood, Sweat, and Tears' Spinning Wheel, which mm. really is game-recognizing game. Now, yeah. Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, they were basically a blue-eyed soul uh, uh, band, and right. they had scored a hit, I think, pretty much, I think, a year earlier uh, with Spinning Wheel, which was just basically their take on James Brown. I mean... <laughs> it, it's yeah. clearly influenced by Brown and, and other sort of early funk artists because it's squarely built on the one and the three, and it's got those horn arrangements and it's just, you know, it's basically, uh, you know, David Thomas taking, you know, things just absolutely to, you know, to like, you know, next level on like the soul brother, like the white soul mm. brother, number one, uh, right. is that. And so, I think by Brown doing his sort of tasteful uh, organ driven version of spinning wheel. Again, it's just, it's almost like a wink and a nod of like, Oh, you know, I influenced you to write this amazing piece of music. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to give you credit because ain't I so great that I influenced you and I'm going to do it just as well, if not better, because as far I, as I think well, he does do it better. And I <laughs> think, is better. and I think Brown actually plays organ on it. So, yeah. uh, cause you know, Brown played organ, uh, when he when he put when he performed live, if he did an instrument, a, a lot of times it was organ. Uh, occasionally and, drums. Occasionally occa drums. Occasionally drums. Uh, but yeah. but he did he did would play organ live, and so I I think that's kind of a neat touch on this record. And then like you also said, you know, you just have these just incredibly energetic uh, versions of his songs, like Mother Popcorn that ends this record. Mm -hmm is like just ridiculous, ridiculously, ridiculously just edgy. On this episode, we gave you the super funky second part of our three-part James Brown retrospective extravaganza. For the next episode, we bring you the conclusion of James Brown's epic story. 
From the mid to late 1970s, Disco had, like it did to many of his era and generation, made Mr. Brown practically irrelevant and relegated to has-been status, playing to half-empty theaters, whereas previously he would have packed these places. But two things happened in the 1980s that revitalized the godfather of soul's reputation, both commercially and artistically. Commercially, not one, but two Hollywood movies brought Mr. Brown back into the public consciousness and by the middle of the decade resulted in one of the biggest hit songs of his career. Artistically, the hip-hop revolution exploded in the 1980s, and with that explosion came the genre's undeniable, obvious debt to the influence of Mr. Brown's intimidating, illustrious body of work. Unfortunately, his increasing drug addiction reached intimidating levels as well as his troubling relationships with women. Yours Truly Curmudgeons will cover all of this and more up to Mr. Brown's passing in 2006 when his place as undisputedly one of the most important American musical figures of the 20th century was solidly assured. Join us next time for James Brown, the super bad Mr. Dynamite of all legacies, part three. Next. And we go to 1971, the first single James Brown released that year, Soul Power, number three R&B, number 29 pop. And not as high as recently, but uh, it's still a great track. James Brown and the JBs slow the funk down to a simmering, sizzling, slow burn marathon. The long version is 12 minutes long. And this is a master class in controlled intensity. One of the catchiest horn arrangements of all of Brown's Herculean singles rides on top of an unstoppable groove led by Catfish Hunter's bird chirp guitar. It is a funk workout par excellence. Brown was burping great singles at this point. Chris? Uh, Catfish Collins, by the way, not Catfish Hunter. Catfish Collins. Thank you. My God. That's the <laughs> the baseball pitcher. Good Lord. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> wrong, wrong, wrong catfish, motherfucker. Uh, yeah, you, you actually hit the nail on the head, by the way, uh, that it's in 71 that you notice that things start to get a little bit slower and a little bit looser. It's hard to say that they get more mellow. Uh, yeah. You can't really say mellow, it, you know, if anything, the intensity becomes more slow burning and it, and because it's yeah. more of a slow burn, it, it may be that much more intense. And this yeah. is kind of where it is. And, you know, it throughout this period, it, it slows down a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And it kind of starts here. And what you also notice is that the horn arrangements start to really get breathtaking here. And this is kind mm. of because yeah. Fred Wesley is kind of in the leadership of the arrangement here. And so. Right. Uh, so, the, so the horns start to get almost menacing. There's almost yeah. a menace in these right. arrangements that start uh, with soul power and, and beyond. And so it's like it's there's as much sliding and bopping that goes on uh, here than mm. rumbling and exploding, which right. that, that period from cold sweat, uh, you know, all the way through uh, uh, the, the end there. Uh, of, all the way through 1970, where it just kept like it was like a jackhammer. Now it's like he's taking the, the, the pedal off the gas just a little bit, 
Although right. maybe he's poking holes in the gas tank. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's more dangerous. Uh, now, yeah, for sure. All right. Next on this list. Again, we're still in 1971. Hot pants. Mm. Number one. Number one, R&B. Number 15, pop. Bootsy Collins and the JBs had left James Brown, with most of them joining George Clinton and his budding P-Funk empire at the time. Brown assembled a new version of the JBs, and no momentum was lost. By this time, Brown was, like you said, Chris, was slowing his funk down to an almost meditative effect, and Hot Pants is exemplary of that. It's his highest charting hit since Superbad. Uh, It was also his last single for King Records. It's also one of his most sampled songs. Uh, Parts of Hot Pants have been used by Public Enemy on Fight the Power, The Stone Roses on Fool's Gold, Kylie Minogue, on Step Back in Time, and Marky Mark, i.e. Mark Wahlberg, and the Funky Bunch on Good Vibrations. Chris? Yeah, uh, Hot Pants is definitely very uh, very, very much sampled, but it also has probably my favorite uh, guitar lick from any mm. of, of his songs. Yeah. It's, it's almost a, it, it's a, it's a lead part, but it's almost like the riff of it. Mm. But, you know, yeah. you get this like, really great little horn riff, but then you get this uh, little, it's almost like a little lick or like a little, uh, what would you call it? Like a kiss yeah. uh, that's on it. And so it's just a really cool, uh, really cool track that just kind of snakes. And hey, my mm-hmm. favorite word, slithers uh, all, <laughs> over, all over the place. And so, it, yeah, it's it's one of uh, one of Brown's better songs. And it's a workout. And it's a, again, it's another one of those parts, uh, one and two uh, uh, songs. Where you know, like, like the bridge is just really, really cool. Uh, there's a live version of Hot Pants actually, where he 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 speeds it up. And again, this is more of a, an, another fine example of the master of tempo. And where mm. there, there's a live version where it's like basically played at like maximum speed, where mm. it it he they're able to replicate those horn parts on the bridge, but they do it at turbo speed, and so it's like wow, and it just fucking rocks. Yeah. So yeah. just anyway, a lot, lot, lot of talent that that, that that surrounded that dude. I'm telling you now. Sure. And the, the, the JBs, the original JBs were great, but hey, the, the ones he replaced them with were still pretty damn good too. Yep. Anyway, next, last great single from 1971, Make It Funky. Number one R&B, number 22 pop. In 1971, James Brown moved on to Polydor Records a subsidiary of the German label Gramophone with Polydor buying buying back all his back catalog from King Records, which eventually went defunct. Uh, his first release would be Make It Funky, another mid-tempo groover with a twinkling keyboard motif in the background that eerily resembles some of the synthesizer sounds that would emanate almost a decade later. Uh, a killer bass line guides the track along as Brown shouts out his favorite items on the traditional Southern soul food menu towards the end. <laughs> Chris? <laughs> yeah, uh, this is one of my favorite pieces of music of all time. Uh, you know, the single, yes, is is the shorter version with, with the piano, uh, with the piano tinkles uh, uh, in there. But do yourself a favor, folks. It's on the streaming services. You need to listen to the full uh, 12 minute and 45 second uh, 
in-studio recording parts one, two, three, and four of Make It Funky. It is one of the single greatest pieces of rec recorded music ever. And mm. it just, it, it is it is funk as orchestra. And literally, because Brown uh, is it, at times talking and conducting his players through uh, what they're doing. And so it's amazing because you would think that like, a room full of people saying the same three words, chanting those over, over and over and over again. Like they, mm -hmm. the whole make it funky that never yeah. stops for 13 minutes. Right. It never stops. But to build it on top of that, where the, the bass seems to get thicker and then Maceo gets a turn uh, with an amazing sax solo. And then towards the end of the song, one of the most remarkable things I've ever heard uh, is Brown and Fred Wesley when Wesley, it comes time for him to do his solo on uh, on Make It Funky, Brown basically working with Wesley, basically conducting him by mouth, where there's a, a call and response, where Brown mouths the part that he wants from Fred, and Fred plays it. Uh -huh. And it's this amazing uh, interplay. And again, it just, it just goes on. And the song ends with Brown uh, commanding his guitar player to uh, replicate a BB king blues lick uh mm -hmm. and so just just the contours of it just the way that it's built the construction uh the hypnotism of it all because the chant never stops and the funk just it, the groove just keeps getting deeper and deeper and more textured and it's marching music i mean basically yeah. this, this was this was sunday in the park marching music for african-american people uh, that were coming of age in the, the late 60s and early 70s. That's what funk was. And this song yeah. and this recording, Make It Funky Parts 1, 2, 3, and 4, absolutely prove it. Go check it out immediately. Yeah, you can find it on YouTube if you don't want to pay for a subscription, yeah. <laughs> like it, I do. It, it is on YouTube. Uh, yeah. the, the, the full 12 minutes, 45 seconds is on YouTube. Right. All right, coming up next, now we go into 1972 with Talking loud and saying nothing. Uh, number one in the R&B chart, again, number 27 pop. Now, while released in 1972, this was actually recorded two years previously with the Bootsy Collins-led JBs. Now, uh, no wonder this has one of the most killer bass lines on any James Brown recording. I think it's Bootsy's best bass line uh, on, on his James Brown work. This is down and dirty funk at its very best. Chris? Yeah, I mean, that the, the mixture of that, like, I mean, almost like drunken language bass line with the with the, the congas and, yeah. the, you know, the sort of the organic percussion. Yeah, this is uh, this is a this was a weed smoking song extraordinaire. Uh, this, <laughs> this, Stoner Brown. Yeah, this this was Stoner James Brown for sure. This is not a song to stay sober to. Uh, <laughs> it 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 yeah it, it it's probably his it it in a way it's 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 almost funny. You almost wonder if they did it as a joke because yeah. there's nothing else in terms of the rhythm or the tempo quite like it in in this entire period. Uh, there, it, it's almost like a one off them screwing around in the studio kind of thing, and but it works, man. It works. Yeah, totally. What also works, Get On The Good Foot from 1972, number one R&B again, number 18 pop, 
really big hit for him, actually. Yep. If the previous song had one of the best bass lines on any James Brown track, Get On The Good Foot has one of the most insanely catchy horn riffs oh, yeah. on any of his records. Uh, James brings the funk back to an up-tempo pace and a couple of delicious bass solos by Fred Thomas, very underrated bass player. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, you get you get the bass licks on uh, Get On The Good Foot, but there's also this little punchy little guitar uh, part and like you said that that horn riff is insane uh yeah. you know and just you know the with the 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 the, the suppleness and the the uh i don't know the art what would you call it there's a suppleness or there almost a, a, a an athleticism to it that's just extraordinary and big ass textures yeah say. yeah exactly and and the song is just catchy as hell it just has this it has this kind of like you know like like fun little shuffle uh to it right uh, I'm actually a bigger fan of a song that came out the same year, uh, Don't Tell It, which has it kind of comes from the same. Uh, it's not quite as as jittery, but it has mm. this, the same kind of smoothness to it. I mean, it, 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 these are some of his smoothest songs that, that, that basically came out of the same uh, recording uh, session. But, yeah, Get on the Good Foot is about as good as it gets, man. It, and, and that's very, very, very you could tell Fela was very influenced by that song too. Oh yeah. Cause yeah, that absolutely. has, a, that has a very, very Afro beat uh, rhythm. Yeah. What became known Fela Kuti equals James Brown plus jazz horn section, horn sections plus African rhythms. There you yeah. go. There, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, coming up next from 1973, one of my favorite song titles in the entire James Brown catalog. I got ants in my pants and I want to dance. Uh, number four R&B, number 27 pop. It has a nifty jazz breakdown in the bridge. Um, Brown's funk formula starts to get, well, a little formulaic at this point. But when the formula is this effective and irresistible, who's complaining? This is a great track. Chris? Yeah, it, it's kind of a, a it, it's a bizarre song in the sense is that, you know, like most songs are are, are structured verse, chorus, bridge. Yeah, uh, this one is verse, bridge, chorus. Yeah, uh, and so it's it's got this kind of bizarre structure, and it's a very alien type song. And what mm -hmm. I love what I love is that the verse is the verse in the chorus. Well, well no, the, well the verse has absolutely nothing to do, to do with the chorus. That, yeah. that, that the verse might as well just be gibberish. The whole you know ants in my pants <laughs> thing, and and, and yeah. you know sort of grunts and and all that, and that 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 silly little like swinging horn thing mm. but then all of a sudden he's he, he he's romantically challenged and just <laughs> really pained in his soul in in the chorus and yeah. well like i said and then and then the bridge is just like that that's another uh that bridge it's another heavily sampled uh, uh sampled part uh in right. early hip-hop uh but i think a lot of folks and i know speaks to judd judd apatow and steve carell's talents uh, in comedy that the, the reference I get immediately when I hear this song is uh, from the 40 year old virgin. <laughs> if you remember that there's a scene in that where Carell's walking down the street and, and he's terrified of all the hot women that he's passing. And uh, the song is, I got ants in my pants and I want to dance. Uh, so yeah, just, just, a, just a really eccentric nugget uh, from Brown. It's one of his more eccentric songs. Cause like I said, who, who, who thinks to put the bridge in the middle of everything? Right, I know. You know the bridge uh, the bridge is supposed it's supposed to be like if if a song has four acts, the bridge is supposed to be act three, not act two. Yeah. Well, James Brown is part of what made him a visionary. 
Another track. The next one is, I think, one of the most underrated songs in his entire discography. The Payback from 1974. Number one R&B, number 26 pop. One of the best pure funk tracks. And he's got a lot of them in his canon. It's amazing it only went as high as number 26 on the pop chart. Oh, yeah. Um, this, this song came back into style back in 1995 as part of the soundtrack to the movie Dead Presidents. A really good film, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, this song with a simple yet brilliantly placed guitar riff and pulsing. That's what you call a bass line. Pulsing bass line. Yeah. Brown rants on someone who took his money and his woman or lied to him or cheated him or he's not really clear on it he's pissed off about some person (laughs) and it peaks with the immortal line i don't know karate but i know crazy Uh, yeah it's actually crazer not crazy crazer yeah which which makes which makes even less sense (laughs) (laughs) this this is the year george clinton debuted parliament uh, his most successful outfit which would eventually take the funk zeitgeist away from Brown, but the very end of Mr. Brown's peak was still essential funk. Chris? Yeah, uh, one thing you have to understand, too, is that Brown, during the this part in the early 70s, he started to do soundtracks to black exploitation films. Yes, he did, he did several of them. Yeah, and, and this song, uh, I don't know if the name of the, uh, the movie was uh, The Payback, right. but it's an out al- it comes from an album that ostensibly is the soundtrack to a black exploitation film and yeah. you know, like uh, stone to the bone and uh, mind power and a, a few other songs around the same record uh right. so he's this is you get so he, what he's singing about he's basically playing the character of you know the mm. of the guy of the aggrieved guy who's gotten his woman stolen and gotten his money stolen and now it's like you know right. you, you, you you don't mess with the wrong brother <laughs> uh, it's kind of the song but like you said uh probably the second best riff in all of james brown after sex machine uh mm. just, just a nasty ass uh, uh, uh funk guitar riff that yeah. you know and again it, because the song is like what is it like nine minutes long or something it's yeah uh, seven it, seven and a half minutes yeah it, it it's another one of those songs that gets absolutely hypnotic that that that, that repetition and that never-ending motif uh maybe it musically doesn't get texture, but like psychologically, it, it, yeah. it builds texture and tension that, you know, by the end of it, there's several songs like that. You listen to them that it might be seven and a half minutes, but it feels like 37 and a half minutes because mm. because of the, the investment of energy that you've put into it. Right. Um, that was one of his gifts was was rhythm is hypnosis. Mm-hmm, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hypnotic and trancey. I mean, it's a big part of funk, and it's a big part of what uh, Brown did. Uh, you're talking about the soundtrack. Uh, the album that this song comes is from is from the the album The Payback that came out in December of '73. The single came out later uh, in in '74. Uh, the music on this album was scheduled to be be the soundtrack for the black exploitation film Hell Up in Harlem. Oh, okay. but, the, but the album was rejected by the film's producers. Uh, director Larry Cohen, who directed the film, said the music was not funky enough. <laughs> it was rejected. So Brown decided to put it out on his own as his own album. God damn. Go. I mean, how, how funky does an album have to be to be funkier than this album? Uh, that is one demanding ass director. <laughs> <laughs> Not funky enough. 
to James Brown. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's worth noting, by the way, that his most famous soundtrack for one of those films is from Black Caesar. Yes. Yeah. Which is a good movie. I like that film. Yeah. I love I love most of those black exploitation films. I have a big soft and soft spot in my heart for them. Anyway, <laughs> the next and the last song on this streak, My Fang with an oh. A from 1974. Number one R&B, number 29 in the pop chart. What separates my thang from other songs in this hard funk period of James Brown is that he brings back the majestic, drawn-out horn arrangements, something yeah. that was a staple of his early sound. Uh, this yeah. song dares you not to dance. That's how funky it is. This song was also sampled by DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, i.e. Will Smith, for Brand New Funk, Kanye West and Jay-Z for Gotta Have It, Heavy D and the Boys for We Got Our Own Fang, and Belle Biv DeVoe for Something in Your Eyes. Yep. Chris? Yeah, uh, yeah. my Fang is, is, is a heavily, uh, is, DJ, it's kind of worth mentioning, DJ Jesse Jeff and Fresh Prince, they uh, sample Brown a lot. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, th th you know, they're right up there with uh, a couple of, uh, like, the, the Rob Bases and Public Enemies, yeah. and uh, uh, even, like, De La. Uh, mm. they, you know, J Jazzy Jeff was act was a, a big, huge uh, influence on the James Brown sample uh, movement. Right. Uh, one thing, and you kind of mentioned this, it's about 1974 that Brown starts singing real songs again. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. he that he's been obsessed with the one and making everything, even his voice and instrument that all crashes on the same beat <laughs> yeah, right. and, and in the yeah. same motif. But yeah. now with stuff like the payback and some of the songs on that album and, you know, it's, uh, you know, down and out in New York City, which I think is a little bit before this kind of right. uh, presaged uh, that. But you also get uh, like Cold Blooded and Funky President and uh, other songs that, again, where he's 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 starting to sing for real again, uh, like for real lyrics and mm. you know, not 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 quite as, you know, not quite as hyper or as or as, or as just, you know for lack of ridiculous in the best sense of the uh, in, in the <laughs> yeah. best sense possible but he's he's starting to get a little bit more earthbound uh with this stuff right. in 74 and you know and that kind of sets up what becomes sort of a um, a, a disco-ish uh, uh period uh sure uh, for him which you know some of his kind of, of his down kind of his downfall at this point yeah kind of his downfall but like but it was kind of, yeah he was on the verge of a downfall this is like sort of like uh, my thing and cold blooded and those that's kind of like James Brown's great last stand. Yeah. And, and he comes back to real songs and then I guess he gets obsessed. He, he, it's almost like he's back in time 20 years and trying to make everything that he touches a hit again. Yeah. And doesn't quite work in, in the third act, which we'll get into in part three of, of this, uh, of this here series. And which brings us, brings us to the end of, of this part, episode of part two. <laughs> Yep, so we have now ended part two, and like we said, part three will be the rest of the James Brown story. Like we said, this is just an extraordinary, and we, this was the best way for us to do it, was to just geek out on all of these songs, because you you just mm -hmm. see it, that this this growth of aggression, of confidence, of defunct, of, of that rhythm machine, uh, you know, of that, uh, of that nihilism wave, that you know not only became funk but the best of disco. Uh, it influences Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones. It influences Stevie sure. Cootie. 
it influences uh, like the Gap Band and and uh, Cameo mm. and all those folks. It influences Chic, and then obviously it influences hip hop. Uh, it influences yeah. Prince. Uh, you know, it influences uh, Teddy Riley, and just like all you know, uh, obviously actually has a, a heavy influence on Biggie because yeah, you know, part of Biggie's persona is kind of taking James Brown, Soul Brother, uh, number one, uh, Sex Machine Man. And and doing it in you know for the three hundred and fifty pound guy set, right? <laughs> so you know, so you take yeah. the, the, these eight years and all these songs we just talked about, and it distills everything good in black music that came, and and basically most music, not just black mm-hmm. music, but almost all music that comes after it. Uh, music is statement, and we just right. we just we just made it for you there. So yeah, it, 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 this period of Brown influenced everything from hip hop to electronic. To, to EDM, to techno, to later on in the 90s, Neo Soul, to freaking trip hop, you name it, man. This R- is R- like Rage Against the Machine. Rage Against the Machine. This is the fountain, you know. Yeah, all- yeah. this is the fountain for, for, for funk, for soul, for hip hop, for protest music. You know, yeah. say, it, say it loud. Uh, me personally, I'm not black and I'm proud, but when I listen to it, boy, do I feel like it. So exactly. Uh, there you go. And with that said, uh, folks, as we uh, are apt to do at the end of these episodes, uh, please, please, please come join our curmudgeonly community on Facebook. Uh, Pretty vibrant up there. We get uh, some really uh, great conversations going. Uh, Arturo is in the midst of uh, uh, presenting his greatest albums year by year list. We just did studio albums, studio albums, studio albums, not just albums, just studio albums. Uh, for every year, uh, he just did 71. By the time this album drops, uh, or, or this episode drops, he'll have done uh, 1972. So uh, join our group at facebook.com slash groups slash Promotion Rock. Uh, if you have anything to say, if you agree with anything we've said, disagree, uh, we'd love to hear from you at Rock at gmail.com. And finally, uh, we are still holding on. Uh, Twitter is a weird-ass place. If you have a blue check, that probably means you're a creep. On, on Twitter now, but we're still there at Promotion Pod. Uh, we're still following the people we love, like Jason Isbell and Mike Mills, and we're still scorning the people we don't, like whoever runs Charlie Daniels' uh, <laughs> Twitter. I think it's his son. Uh, so yeah, the fact that the country music fascists are out full force on Twitter, uh, you know, God bless Elon Musk for making those guys feel like they, you know, like they, they stand seven feet tall. 